thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and joining me today is Trevor Boswell. What's up, Boat? Hey, Jello. It's uh, pretty good to be here. Thanks for having me again. Uh, you're welcome. So uh, let's see. What's new with you? It's been a little while since we heard from you. Yeah, it has been. Now, just uh, you know, trying to trying to survive whatever this uh, crazy time is. I actually did uh, <laughs> contract COVID um, about a month ago, so I'm just in the uh, you know recovery phase of that and getting wow. back to flying on uh, the civilian side and everything. But otherwise, uh, everybody's doing well. Oh, good. All right. Well, I mean, was it uh, clearly you survived? But how, how bad was it? I did. I did. Although my wife, uh, might say otherwise, uh, for her <laughs> with the both kids, but, uh, yeah, really, really, it wasn't, um, as bad as, you know, kind of the news has, has made some cases to be out, but for me, it was more just like a, you know, pretty severe head cold, bad headache and whatnot. Otherwise, okay, here I am. All right. Fair enough. Well, let's see. We are doing an intermission episode today. You're going to help us out. We just had a very nice Army Aviation Month extravaganza with four episodes. So we thought we'd take a little break and got a bunch of listener questions. Uh, But let's see what's new with us. We have released our Raven One DCS campaign. Uh, People might remember we worked on that for about 15 months with Kevin Miller, call sign Hoser, who wrote the book Raven One. We adapted that for our digital combat sim friends and they have a i think about a 15 mission campaign that they can download and play and so far so good everyone everyone's saying it's really been uh, pretty cool and we've also launched two new facebook groups recently we have the hangar for scale model enthusiasts and the trading post for folks who want to buy and sell different aviation uh, military aviation specifically merchandise so uh, everyone can go check out our facebook page look for our groups and you'll see we've aligned all the names there so we have the fpp flight line that's the name of our photography group now the fpp hangar the fpp pit for aspiring pilots so got a bunch of cool groups and boat i know you're always uh, on there helping us uh, moderate those groups thanks very much Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see kind of what people are interested in and, and the comments and posts and everything else. So it's great to, great to Good. get to interact. And I guess the biggest news for me is that yesterday, my airline, our airline actually, sure. uh, sent a letter out to everybody saying, well, we're still not sure what's going to happen with furloughs, but most likely if you were hired after this date, then you probably will be. And as it turns out, I was hired about three months before that. So that's good news for me. I might not get furloughed after all, but it might require me uh, living in San Diego to commute to New York. So corner to corner, that might be a little painful. But <laughs> hey, as one of my uh, Patreon supporters said, uh, commuting is better than unemployment. I have to agree. I would say, yeah, that's a pretty accurate statement. <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, uh, I was thinking about taking this break to answer a bunch of listener questions. We've got a handful of phone calls, and then I think we'll save the emails for another day. But to be totally honest, Boat, you know why we keep doing these intermissions? Uh, Because we're lazy. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Note to self, no open-ended questions to vote. Uh, well, partly, although this is a bit of work too, but no, we are actually trying to manage our episode numbers so that we can get to episode 100 at the end of this year. And we're going to make it a little festive occasion. We'll do some top tens. We'll bring back some former guests and co-hosts and stuff. So that's what we're trying to do is uh, just make episode 100 happen uh, right around December 31st. We'll see if we can make that happen. Fantastic. Cool. Well, hey, uh, today, let's just keep it simple and go through, got about a dozen phone calls and uh, we'll listen and answer. What do you think? I like it. All right. Let's start with the first one. Hey, Jello. This is Brian calling from Washoe Valley, Nevada. Love the show. I uh, heard it mentioned on the B1 episode the other day, I believe, about the B58 Hustler. I think he just uh, he uh, quickly mentioned it. I was wondering if you could find some of the old drivers from B58s from the old days, even though I think they were only in service for a couple of years. But uh, really interested, love seeing them in the museums, and I would love to hear more about it. So maybe you could try to find one of those guys and get them on the show and so we could hear all about the B58. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. All right, Brian, thanks for the question. Well, as fate would have it, we are trying to do another Bomber Month this year, but we are struggling finding actually different guests to join us. And so if you know, or if anyone else does, a B-58 pilot or expert, send them our way. But otherwise, it's always on this show a question of finding the right guests. Uh, Boat, do you happen to know any hustler pilots or experts? Uh, you know what? I'd love to say I do, but I, I definitely don't. I know there's a bunch of them in the museums and stuff like that. And honestly, mm-hmm. that is, that is my favorite bomber. Uh, it looks pretty awesome, but, uh, no, I yeah. don't know anybody. Sorry. Okay. Well, we do have one or two potential guests and it's just a function of trying to get them lined up and the interviews recorded. And so Brian, uh, appreciate your patience, but we'll try to do that just as soon as we can find someone. All right, let's go to our next question from Ben. Hi, my name's Ben. I'm from the I'm from Maidstone in Kent, uh, which is just south of London, uh, in the UK. I uh, hope everyone at the Fighter Pilot Podcast as well. Um, and thanks uh, to all of you for the podcast. It's been a great source of entertainment uh, while stuck working in my garden um, during this lockdown that we have in the UK at the moment. Uh, my question is this: I can see the patch notes for DCS, uh, the F-18 module, and automatic carrier landing systems coming soon. Uh, I assume that the system is very much present on the F-18 in real life. Uh, Given an auto auto landing system existed, um, why wasn't it used particularly often or at all by the sounds of it? Uh, It sounds like it could be a huge resource for night traps where many have uh, said uh, pilots are their most fearful. Uh, I can deduce that given it's not used that much, it has plenty of limitations and is likely a proficiency upkeep issue in the sense the pilots need to stay current and up to date with the ability to land in the deck. But what are the actual limitations of the system and why isn't it used often? Uh, thanks for the show. Um, thank you uh, personally for the support from yourselves and uh, friends you pointed me towards over the Air Force Officer podcast um, a couple of weeks back. And um, thank you both for your service. Um, enjoy the rest of your days and uh, I look forward to the podcast. All right, Bo, why don't you take this one? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll definitely be very smart on uh, the F-18 carrier landing uh, system, for sure. Yeah, all right, no problem. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think if I understand Ben's question correctly, he's asking about our Mode 1 ACLS, or Automated Carrier Landing System. And but that is where, as we come down, especially at night or in inclement weather, we have what you would consider your regular ILS needles in your yeah. F-16 or in your airline. Yeah. But 
uh, at night, also at the boat, uh, we have this little tadpole that shows up, and it's based on a different radar, and it's way more accurate. So what it does is it locks on to our individual aircraft, and then our aircraft actually sends signals back and forth to the ship. And so we get these health checks, and it's so good that we can actually couple the autopilot and the auto throttles, and it will fly itself all the way down, theoretically, to a perfect three-wire. And so to Ben's question is, why don't we do it more often? Well, first off, you have to have the proper sea, state, and winds. And so I put this question to a bunch of former LSOs, and most of them couldn't remember the exact specifics, Ben, because if it was bad enough that there was any question, it, usually there was no question. So if, if you couldn't do a mode one, or if you couldn't use the regular lens, and you had to rig the manual lens, what we call moveless, well, then mode ones were right out. But if it was a fairly benign environment with the winds and the sea states, well, then, yeah, it's up to the pilot whether he or she wants to do a mode one. And the second part of this is that I think I've mentioned it somewhere else on this show, but when I was a brand new pilot, our new XO, uh, Bill Sizemore, Size, he was coming down one night and I just happened to be watching it on the TV in the ready room and he was coupled up for a mode one. And all of a sudden there was this huge anomaly and it almost crashed him into the back of the boat, frankly. And so what he did was he was very smart to be riding the controls all the way down. He was watching and he was very experienced ball flyer. And so he immediately overrode the controls and barely missed the back of the ship and went off again and came back around. And it was so egregious of an error that they actually discontinued use of the system for a while until they could get folks to come out and take a look at it. And so those of us who were young pilots just kind of watched that and said, if that had been us, we probably would have crashed and died because we wouldn't have been quick enough to know what was happening. And so we kind of made a pact to each other right then and there and said, all right, let's never do mode ones. And no kidding, <laughs> 705 arrested landings boat. I never did one <laughs> mode one, if you can believe that. That's uh, yeah, that, that'll definitely send a shock through the system, I think for sure. Yeah. But to, uh, I think to Ben's point, the reason I didn't do it was not just for that reason, but also I just didn't want to get lazy. I always wanted to swing the weighted bat, if you will, and always be in a position where I would know that I could do it because yeah, if there's something going on and you need that system, well, it's a lot easier to go that way. But if you're reliant on the system and then you need to fly a manual pass and you aren't quite up to proficiency, then that could be an issue. Uh, but I will tell you that those experienced pilots who didn't make that pack that I did, they would use mode ones in a couple different places. First, sometimes you do fly twice at night. And so on the second one, you might just get tired uh, or to your earlier point, lazy. <laughs> and so you'll do one there, but you still have to, as size proved, you still have to watch it uh, like a hawk. Yeah. Uh, but the other reason people would do it is, as you may know, but we grade all of our landings. And every so often after about 25 landings, we have our uh, ratings, uh, rankings, I should say, and we give the top 10 ball flyers a little patch that they can put on their jacket that says, hey, I'm among the best in the air wing. And so if you had a really good line period, as it's called, going, and you know it's almost over and you don't want to blow it, well, then you can do a mode one because they don't grade those. So Is there any like uh, currency requirements to do any of those kinds of things? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I never did one, so I don't remember. Um, okay. If you were coming back to the ship to do carrier qualification, then you had to fly each pass, of course. You couldn't just couple yeah. up and do a bunch of mode ones. Um, and then I forget what the other requirements were, and here's where listeners will probably school me on it. But again, it was just one of those things where you kind of knew if you were current or not, and uh, you, you didn't do it for carrier qualification. That was about it. And then sure. if for whatever reason you were trying to do one, 
and the LSOs didn't want you to. They would just tell you downgrade, meaning hey, go ahead and fly the pass. And uh, and certainly if they had to rig the manual lens because the ship was moving, then you didn't want to do it anyway. So sure, okay, yeah, good stuff. Now nice. I left before this whole thing called Magic Carpet, which I think they then renamed to Precision Landing Mode, and apparently that makes carrier landings much easier and safer anyway. So who knows? Maybe it's different by now, but those were my experiences. Well, yeah, you got that. Uh... So the unmanned uh, tanker thing coming along as well. So I'm sure that, oh, true. that's adding some technology to the systems mm-hmm. that maybe wasn't yeah. there before. Yeah, there you go. I guess that's going to be coupled up pretty much every time. Yeah. Awesome. All right, let's go to another phone call. Hey, Jello. This is Jeb Hogue from Midlothian, Virginia. A big fan of the show. Here's my question. For long-range missions like 24-hour bomber missions or transoceanic crossings, do air crews have a special diet that they switch to in the days leading up to the flight to minimize the need to poop? I know it's a weird question, but it seems like a low-residue diet would be the way to go, if you'll pardon the pun, if you had the opportunity to plan for it. Thanks for this amazing podcast, and I look forward to your answer. All right, Boat. I never had a chance to fly super long missions over the oceans. I think my longest mission in an F-18 was six and a half hours-ish over Iraq. Did you ever do any... Transpac or Transatlantic flights? Um, never uh, over the Atlantic, over uh, only over the uh, Pacific, and I've done oh. a fair share, um, and I guess over the Indian Ocean too, going to Iraq from uh, Japan. But um, I mean, I think the the simple, uh, straightforward answer uh, is uh, don't eat Indian food or Mexican food. If that uh, <laughs> kind of covers the gamut of uh, what not to eat, that's probably. Wait, are you the way. profiling here, Boat? No, 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 no. I'm I'm all for those foods, just not before a long flight. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, anything that uh, isn't maybe as solid going in is probably not something uh, you want coming out when you have no other place to go. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a dirty subject, literally and figuratively. Yeah, um, yeah, and. Uh, there's no one right answer because every, obviously every person is different. So, um, it does take a while to kind of get to know your body and, and know what does or does not react well. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the, simple, the simple answer is, um, probably don't have a huge meal before you leave, uh, minimize the, uh, quantity of intake, try to get, uh, you know, high, um, high calorie kind of food, uh, going in as much as you can, but it, in, in limited quantities, uh, and then eat on the way. Uh, so that you're not uh, starting off on the wrong side of uh, of uh, right. full or empty. Uh, yeah, and the only thing I would add to that, of course, is right before you walk for me or step for you, is you try to evacuate as much as you can, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, the PDP, <laughs> if you will. Yep, yep, there you go. Uh, <laughs> and I did, by the way, ask T-Day this question as well, because he did a bunch of back-and-forth crossings, and he says the flight surgeons would tell you to eat a high-protein, low-carb, uh, low-residue diet, uh, and like we just said, taking care of the, quote, morning constitutional prior to getting on the horse. Um, I think the biggest thing, though, for me was always if I knew it was going to be a longer flight, like a double cycle, was just to simply not eat anything too different. Because if your body's used to certain types of foods, then you probably are safe. But like you said, you didn't want to all of a sudden have a bunch of spicy food or just anything that's too different where you might have a problem. And I don't know about for you, if you got any stories, of course, uh, most of the runways you operated from were available to take you anytime. But in naval aviation, there were some pretty notorious stories of people who frankly had problems and I won't delve into too much of it, but sometimes call signs came out of it, which is never good. And so, (laughs) yeah, uh, definitely a sensitive, uh, matter. 
Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's probably All some right. probably some uh, photographic evidence uh, out there somewhere too. Uh, let's hope not. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's take another phone call. This one's from Kevin. Hey, Jello. This is Kevin Flynn calling from Brampton, Ontario, and just had a quick question uh, about post-stall maneuvers. What's the deal with those? How do those work? And I guess, how would you explain them to a layman such as myself? I mean, the name, uh, the definition is kind of in the name, I guess, post-stall maneuver, to maneuver after view stalled. But there's a bit more to it than that, I'm sure, and I'm just wondering what the experts at the Fighter Pilot Podcast can tell me. So um, a few things I've actually written them down because I keep stumbling over myself and re-recording this message. Um, is there any other names for any other sort of maneuvers that are done besides the Cobra? If there isn't, there should be. I can come up with them if you need them. Um, do you need thrust vectoring? Is that a hard requirement in order to pull off certain maneuvers? Because I would think just recovering from a stall is kind of a, a post-stall maneuver, is it not? And um, I guess, in your own opinion, Jello, how tactically viable do you think post-stall maneuvers are and... What do you think will happen when we get to the point where, like, every fighter jet out there has thrust vectoring? Is every, you know, dogfight of the future going to be a bunch of people in, I guess, the tightest uh, phone booth imaginable just turning up their own butts? Uh, how are the missiles and the, the weapon systems going to handle that? I mean, the, the capabilities seem to be uh, quite immense. And uh, the the possibilities are endless. So I was, I guess, just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Anyways, keep up the good work and stay safe out there, people. Bye. All right, Boat. There are a lot of questions hiding in this one. I'm not sure where to begin. What about let's start with, I guess, post-stall maneuvers. I just think of those as post-stall maneuvers. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does kind of seem like it's in the title. Um, but I think if you want to get more technical. Uh, I did a little bit of research as much as I could anyway on what's in open source. And the uh, basic definition that I came up with was the aircraft is exceeding the aerodynamic angle of attack and requires another form of flight control to continue maneuvering, which I think most everybody typically associates thrust vectoring with mm -hmm. uh, with post-stall maneuvering. So that's typically the one that everybody kind of knows and loves. So, um, and yeah. then, yeah, jumping, jumping into the other uh, list of questions Kevin had, um, are there any other, uh, post-all maneuvers out there other than the Cobra? And obviously that's the one that everybody sees in the videos and stuff, but there's one called the Herps maneuver, uh, or J turn, which is kind of mm. like a, um, a U turn with the nose high, and then you turn either left or right. Um, it's kind of, kind of looks like a skid or a drift if you're into car, uh, car racing, that kind of thing. Um, so it kind of looks like that. Um, and then, well, hold on, uh, let me challenge you here, boat for a second, sure. because if the pilot is able to do these in a controlled manner, do they really qualify as post stall maneuvers or do they qualify because the wing is not producing lift? So like, in other words, if you had a theoretical aircraft that could stand on its tail and just hover because it's pointing up, but the jet exhaust is pointing down and it had mm -hmm. some way to control it. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at here? As long as it, it's not a question of controlling the aircraft, it's a question of whether the wings are generating lift. Uh, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, yes, that's an accurate statement only because okay. the stall is the defining characteristic of, of where these things kind of come in and exist. And mm -hmm. so all of these things are within the confines of, of the wing 
being stalled, breaking that you know angle of attack, that critical angle gotcha. attack. And so that thrust, if you think of like a jet ski, and you can turn the um, you know handlebars left and right to make yourself turn, but if you have no thrust associated coming out the back end, you're just going to go whatever that direction is. Well, it's kind of the same concept with the wing. The wing's going to have you go a direction, but if that wing can't provide you um, you know any lift or directional flight path or the, you know, the vertical tail isn't providing you any, you know, straight flight path. You're just going to be tumbling out there and everything. So that's where that thrust vectoring comes in. Um, or if you have extreme maneuverable, uh, control surfaces that can get back into, um, the angle of attack that allows for them to be productive in terms of providing lift uh, or direction, um, then that's where you're going to get uh, the ability to do the post-all maneuvering. Um, so it's, it's kind of a fine line. And I know, you know, NASA has done a ton of research on it. The air, the United States air force has done some stuff with it. Um, so there's, and then obviously the Russians and, and everything else. So there's, there's, you know, just a ton of, of opportunities there to, to explore, hmm further envelopes within the uh, post stall world of uh, aviation, right. but typically thrust vectoring is the thing that's uh, kind of driving yeah. what all these maneuvers are. But um, you've got uh, the Colbit uh, is another one that's out there. The Frolov uh, chakra uh, as uh, is the Russian term. Basically it's a tight loop or I, based on looking at videos and stuff, it just looks like a really like a flip of the aircraft. Like really fast. Yeah. Like a backflip mm-hmm. with basically no altitude loss. So if you look at the Cobra, it's like the second half of the Cobra, just continuing the flip all the way over. Huh. Um, but looking at some of the stuff that NASA had put out there, um, in the X 31, and then they had taken an F 15 and an F 16 as well, and put some thrust vectoring and on the F 15, they put uh, some canards in the front as well. Um, they, they determined that it was not necessary uh, to have thrust vectoring um, in order to pull off pull-stall maneuvers, but it was something that uh, obviously does assist and, and allows for the more dramatic uh, air show type maneuvers and everything like that. So you can do it without it. Uh, you're just not going to have um, maybe as a dramatic effect. Sure. I.e., You're going to have more altitude loss during the type of maneuver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ke- uh, Kevin asks, is recovering from a stall, a post-stall maneuver? I would argue no. I didn't see anything right. that definitively said no, but you know, basically you're maneuvering flight controls to get into the relative wind that's going to break that critical angle attack. So basically you're out of the stall at that point. So I'd say no, simply because you're no longer in a stall when you recover from a stall. Um, yeah, those are kind of mutually exclusive terms in a sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I can see how though it is kind of confusing because you're doing all this stuff after a stall. So yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here we are. I, I guess the real question here, too, is the tactical ramifications of all this. And with my background in mostly F-18s, any kind of slow speed maneuver like this was always kind of a little bit, not scary, but I can't think of a better word, because for us to be able to regain energy takes so long. And so most of these maneuvers, by their nature, are somewhat of a lower, I won't say energy, because certainly the engines are going to put out a lot of thrust if it's thrust vectoring, but your overall aircraft energy state is fairly slow. And as long as you can recover that quickly, it might be great for pointing your nose, but you're going to be somewhat limited in your ability to regain energy. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and obviously, depending on the... uh engine makeup, the loadout of the aircraft and, and that kind of thing, you're definitely going to be um, potentially at a really big disadvantage coming out of one of those engagements if you're using thrust vectoring, or I should say, uh, if you're executing post-all maneuvers during an engagement mm-hmm. and you don't have a 
uh, high thrust to weight ratio, um, or you're in a very draggy aircraft or, or whatever the case may be. So, um, it's definitely a situation that, you know, a better performing engine, better thrust to weight ratio, lower altitude, those kinds of things are really going to help the cause after the fact, but it is absolutely a tactically viable solution to a problem, you know, knife in a, um, knife fight in a phone booth kind of, kind of problem. But the real, the real learning that, you know, at, at least in the air force weapons school, and I'm sure at top gun and everything else is, um, where, where did the mistake happen to get you into that fight in the first place Mm -hmm. so that you can avoid doing that and getting into one of the situations? Because once you get into one of those situations, uh, where you're in close dog fighting, I mean, you're, you're focused on the one guy that you can see, and there may be two or three other guys you can't see that are ready to take shots at you. So, um, it's one of those last ditch kind of, you know, it's why we have a gun still. Um, yeah, it's a little yeah. bit like uh, John Wick, right? If you're dealing with the one guy next to you, you you hope the other guys, as in the movie, they always do kind of wait their turn. But in real life, yeah, if any of those guys are coming in to uh, have at you while you're in the knife fight with the one guy you see, then you could be in trouble. So Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think it's a great question, Kevin. And uh, Kevin's one of our, by the way, uh, Patreon supporters. So we're very thankful for that. But uh, yeah, I think that's a, it's an interesting concept and certainly as super maneuverability and I guess they're even throwing out hyper maneuverability come to the foray, especially with unmanned now aircraft possibly being able to exceed the, what a human can do. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. That the uh, future is is uncertain in this regard. We'll we'll see what aircraft can do in the future. Definitely. All right, let's take another phone call. Hello, my name is Jim Hagee. I'm calling from Missouri. I was wondering if you had thought about talking about the Convair F-106 Delta Dart in an upcoming episode. Thanks a lot for a great show. Bye bye. All right, Jim. Well, thanks very much for your question. And yes, after episode 100 at the end of the year, we hope to do the Century Series. And just for fun, we're going to match up aircraft with their corresponding episode numbers. So we might do, in fact, the Convair F-106 Delta Dart on episode 106. We do have a couple folks lined up, and but we might even have you record, I think, the F-100, fella. Yeah, sounds great to me. Awesome. All right, well, stay tuned for that, Jim, and everybody else that should be in early 2021. All right, another phone call. Hi, Vincent. This is James from Missouri. We emailed back and forth about I felt that people in Washington were making mistakes by procuring fewer numbers for the same amount of money. Anyway, recently I watched your F-15 
episodes, and I sent you a message about a question you asked, where the F-15 has been seen in movies and TV over the years, and uh, I said that the F-15 made an appearance in the movie Airport 79, The Concord. I just want to know if you got that message. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, but why don't you take this one from James in Missouri? Yeah, James. So I, uh, you know, was thinking about it, and that's always kind of the the real big question there as we look at new acquisition programs for new fighters, whether they're existing fighters uh, or new uh, clean sheet designs, that kind of thing. And I don't think there's really one simple answer because the number of threats out there is ever consistently changing. There's always constraints on the budget, and there's always a different you know enemy out there that we need to uh, to be conscious of. Um, and their technology level is going to you know dictate a lot of what we use in in combat. And you look at how long it took the F-22s to to get into uh, the Middle East conflicts that are currently underway. And um, I think the the real simple answer of yeah, we should have tons of F-22s is not necessarily correct solely because that's not necessarily the type of weapon that's going to be the most effective in you know, a low intensity conflict. Whereas A-10s, if we had a thousand A-10s, maybe we'd, you know, win that type of war faster. So, um, mm. when you look at F-22s and F-35s, obviously they're, they're very, uh, expensive, very technologically advanced and stealthy and all the, the buzzwords that are out there. Uh, and then you see in the news within the last, uh, probably four months or so that they're buying eight F-15 EXs and, you're like, wait, wait a second. Why, why is that? Well, it's, it's because the F-15 obviously is a, is a proven design and they may be able to throw a lot of the stuff that's on an F, uh, F-35 or an F-22 into an F-15, but for at a fraction of the cost, uh, relative to an F-22 or an F-35. So, yeah. um, I think there's definitely value added in having the high technology, uh, stealthy types of aircraft, but then having a backup or a larger fleet size of the, uh, maybe 4.5 plus generation aircraft with a lot of the same sensors and weapon capability and all that kind of stuff uh, is probably the more cost-effective solution and maybe in the long run um, the better solution for for future uh, conflicts as well. So I don't know, Jello, do you have anything else to say about that? Well, you know, I'm I'm sitting here searching my mind for an awful analogy that I always love to do and I'm thinking about, for whatever reason, investing where you always are suggested to diversify because some investments might be better in certain markets and some others might be better in others. And I think with what you're talking about, Boat, there's always trade-offs and compromises. If you had an entire fleet of one type of aircraft, well, great. Your training is easier. Your supply chain is easier. I mean, that's frankly what Southwest does, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Moving to yeah. A, uh, an airliner example is all their pilots are 737 pilots, which makes sense. But if all you had was one type of aircraft, well, then you might not be as effective, as you said, uh, in a, a CAS scenario. Or if all you had were CAS aircraft, you might not be as good in a high-altitude dogfight. So I think there is a balance. I don't know what the exact right balance is, but certainly some mix makes sense. And to your other point, James, uh, no, I, for whatever reason, don't recall an email about the F-15 appearing in Airport 79, but I am so notified now. Thank you. So, good question. All right, here we go with another phone call. This is Jim Douglas, call sign Duke. And I'm a Navy SAR guy. One of the things that I noticed was that when I talked to fighter pilots, they really didn't have any clue who were the top scoring Navy guys, World War II, like 
David McCampbell, Brace You, whatever. I had 55 rescues in my SAR career. None of the Navy guys even came close to that number in kills. So I kind of feel like I'm vastly more macho than they are. Is there any reason I shouldn't feel this way? Yeah, I'm just asking. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, Duke. Well, thank you for your comments. And who am I to tell you whether or not it's okay to be macho? Uh, go for it. If it makes you feel good, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what else to say here, but. Uh, no, I, I think uh, you should absolutely be proud of 55 rescues. That's that's pretty fantastic. I have no reference point for that number, but uh, definitely sounds like a bunch to me. Um, yeah. So definitely uh, to those people and their families, I'm sure they definitely appreciate uh, everything that you've done for them. And you should absolutely be proud of that. Um, I know I try to live the humble, credible and approachable kind of mantra. Um, so, you know, the Iceman, Maverick, Top Gun really does start to divert from that mentality, but you definitely need to be confident and proud of, of what you've accomplished. So I think you're totally in the right mindset to, to be proud of your, uh, your efforts and whether you want to compare that to a fighter pilot or not is, is completely up to you. Yeah. Well, and I think it's worth mentioning that, uh, a rescue is maybe more probable or likely, uh, than an air to air kill. There are very few of those just because of conditions in the world, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, uh, I'm glad he did that. And I'm sure the, as you said, the survivors are as well. So thanks for that. All right. Next is another question from one of our Patreon supporters. Hey, Jello, it's Joe Kunzler calling in from a quarantine location. Sadly, not at OF Coopville. Hey, uh, serious questions for you. You know, can you talk sometime about what it's like being an aggressor or a red air pilot? And if we'll have an episode about that, I uh, just think that'd be a really fun topic uh, because sometimes you fighter pilots have to play the bad guy or the boogie or the bandit. And I just think it'd be a fun topic to talk talk about this fall. Uh, best of luck, Joel, and happy and honored to be a strike lead on the Patreon. Hope everybody's subscribing and supporting the show. Thanks. All right, Boat. I think Joe brings up a good question here. And you were one of these types of pilots. Don't we need to have a show about you and guys like you? Absolutely. Joe, what do you want to know, man? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk about my time as uh, an aggressor. Um, it was absolutely one of the best uh, flying experiences that I've ever had. Uh, I do know the current commander of the uh, 64th Aggressor Squadron out at Nellis. Um, so hopefully we can put something together with him um, uh, and any you know, adversary pilots, you know, Jello, uh, definitely. I think it's worth to get worth a, uh, an opportunity to see both the aggressor uh, style for the United States Air Force and the adversary pilot. And then honestly, uh, looking at the uh, contract um, adversary air that is out there these days, that might be worth worth a look as well. Yeah. Uh, Stretch and I, who uh, our guests, or rather our listeners will remember, was our F-22 guest and then came back and helped on the F-15. He works for Draken, and we have tried in the past to get an episode together on Draken and the other contract services uh, just to give an idea of what they do and how they do it, but it just hasn't worked out yet. Sure. So. Yep. But, uh, you know, also I just want to mention that we here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast, our parent organization, BVR Productions, we are working on a whole new podcast and it's going to have a different style than the FPP. It's going to be more like the podcast serial, if you're familiar with that one, with a S, not a C, where we'll take an event and tell it long form over several 
episodes within a season. And we're working on season one right now. We don't know when it will be out, but we will talk, I think, about adversary and aggressor pilots as part of that season. And so it should be really interesting. We're working on it, like I said, and no deadline as of right now, but I'm generally targeting the beginning of 2021. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, But certainly we could do an episode here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast about it as well. There's certainly enough content. Oh, for sure. All right, another phone call. Hey, Jello, this is Mark from uh, Sydney, Australia. Love the podcast. Um, I've just got a, a comment or a suggestion. You've got all of these great fighter pilots uh, that have flown so many awesome aircraft on your show regularly. I was wondering if you might ask them, what's your best flight experience and what's your favorite aircraft that you've flown? Anyway, that's it. Keep up the good work. Love the show and uh, love the guests and the stories. It's awesome. Cheers. All right, Martin, thanks for that suggestion. You know, I've had other suggestions in the past on different things I should ask, and sometimes I'm able to incorporate them, and a lot of times I'm not. I'll do my best to ask what their favorite aircraft or flight experience was, but sometimes I just forget. I'm a very fallible person, so Boat, maybe you'll have to jump in and do some interviews and help out, because I know you could adapt this very easily. <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I can. <laughs> cool. Well, on that note, we are hoping to uh, get you more involved. Like I said, we might have you go do the F-100. And maybe even if we do pull off a bomber month this year, we can have you do one or two of those. So, oh, we'll that'd see. be great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Here is another phone call. Hey, Jello. It is Stan Cyphers here calling from the Seattle area, not far from Whidbey Island. I watch the F-18s fly over the house all the time. Quick question for you. We learn in pilot training that there is an emergency frequency 1 to 1.5. We are told that that is monitored by the airlines and by the military. So my question is, is this something that you guys actually monitor? And I ask that because it seems like you have so many radios to monitor in the first place. How can you also spend time monitoring a civilian channel? Um, one, do you guys actually monitor that? And two, if so, have you ever helped or know of anyone who has helped uh, a private pilot or maybe commercial even in, in that regard uh, with an emergency? That's it. Thank you so much. All right, Boat, what did you guys do in the Air Force? Uh, we'd always flew around listening to guard, but what about you guys? Oh, yeah. No, it's the same thing, and I think that's probably pretty standard, I would imagine, around the world. Uh, you usually mm -hmm. have two, maybe three radios in the aircraft, so they're all tuned to various uh, frequencies that you are uh, either actively transmitting on or uh, just listening to, and one of those is military guard frequency 243.0. Um, that doesn't necessarily simulcast on the civilian 121.5. So um, it does, uh, you know, prevent some possible uh, assistance that military aircraft uh, can provide to civilians directly. Uh, it may require then a controller. And that was kind of the second part of the question is, um, you know, have we helped anybody else out? Um, I can't say I've helped any other civilian aircraft out while I was military flying, but on the civilian side, um, I have been asked by the uh, air traffic controllers to go assist, um, uh, a radio relay or whatever. Um, the one example that I had was uh, there's an aircraft in distress that had an engine issue in a, a small field in Eastern Washington, uh, kind of up in your neck of the woods there, Dan. And uh, it uh, had an engine issue and he was basically just looking for a way to contact his, um, his, his operations to help get maintenance um, up there and, mm. and the parts and everything else like that. But um, yeah, there's, there's always somebody listening to those guard frequencies and uh, depending on uh uh, if you're one of those people that likes to to listen to radio frequencies, there's some interesting stuff that can show up on there sometimes <laughs> for sure. Jelly, you any, yeah. have anything? 
Oh yeah. Well, certainly since I started flying airlines, I was made aware very quickly of just how much chatter is on 121.5. So <laughs> I was glad true. that we only listened to 243 in our military aircraft. Yeah. But I'll tell you, even on that frequency where beacons will go off and different things will happen, it's not uncommon for pilots to get used to what we would call it in the F-18, decolonizing it. So in other words, our radars no, our radios uh, were such that you were always listening to guard unless you deselected it. Yeah. And it wasn't uncommon for people to get used to doing that right away. In fact, I was the investigating officer boat on a mishap where there was a collision um, over Fort Hunter Liggett in Western California, just west of Lemoore. And it was a 2v2 and uh, they, they had knocked it off and the one section was getting ready to go home and the other section had a collision. And unfortunately, the student pilot was killed. But as the first section was leaving, they heard the beacon on guard. And even the student in that section, who by then wasn't very experienced, but it was already so desensitized to guard, they both thought nothing of it. They decolonized guard and kept flying home. Had oh, no idea that the flight behind them had had a problem because they were just so used to, oh, there's something on guard again. Well, I'll just get rid of it because it's overwhelming my senses. And yeah. it wouldn't have made a difference. The instructor ejected and he was fine. The student was killed on impact. But it was just one of those things where as part of the uh, investigation, I was doing the Jagman, which is the one that looks for culpability or causes um, and I had said, this is kind of telling it's, it's not causal to the mishap, but it's pretty telling that a student is already desensitized to the point of deselecting guard on the way home. And it wasn't until they got home that they realized the other section didn't make it. So, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and the only other thing is I've never assisted anyone, but when I was in Fallon, my last time, just before I retired, there was a, a civilian airplane that was up when we had some particularly hellish winds one day and it was blowing up the sand around that area and created kind of a dusting dust storm type of uh, whiteout, if you will. Yeah. And uh, a civilian airplane wandered into our airspace and, and was in trouble. And so a couple F-18s actually led them over to the uh, Fallon Municipal Airport and helped him land. And then they went and landed and drove out and high five with the guy because of course he was thrilled for the uh, support but that's the only one I know of where uh, we've helped because of uh, someone on guard so yep it's it's a lot like mariners on the open sea y'all kind of help each other out same thing up in the skies yeah for sure all right another phone call this one is a repeat from Brian hey Jello Brian calling from Washoe Valley Nevada hey I'm listening to some old episodes and currently listening to the s3 Viking and I would like to know um, about the sonar buoys, you know, P3s, S2 trackers, S3 Vikings, and probably numerous other airplanes have been dropping those things over the years. How big are they? And do they eventually sink or do they float around the ocean forever or do they get picked up or, you know, do, is there some kind of recycling program so they're not like out there in the ocean all the time? I'm just curious. I mean, I'm wondering, I've always wondered about that, but uh, your, your guest in Sunshine were talking about the sonar buoys and they carry lots of them. And I'm just wondering whatever happens to those. Anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. All right, Brian, thanks for the great questions today. And I had to put this one to our old friend, Recky, Becky Shaw. She was our guest on Test Pilot School episode back around, oh, 23, I think it was. And so she flies the P3 and P8s. And so she's familiar with this. And I'll just read her email response to me. She says, a buoy is about three feet when it is in its canister. 
and remains in its canister until it hits the water because of the proven aerodynamics of the canister. Once it hits the water, it releases its sensor system and flotation devices, maybe even a GPS, with strings that can go down 50 to 100 feet, depending on whether it's measuring water temperature or sound or whatever. In the science community, NOAA, which is the National Aero, let's see, Oceanic and Aerospace? No. What is NOAA? Do you remember? National Oceanic Atmospheric. Atmospheric. There you go. Administration. Administration. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so NOAA is testing and certifying mini sons. These are drop sons, uh, which is the version of Sonobuoys, uh, which will be a new standard for hurricanes once we get them. She's moved over to NOAA now. And depending on if the sensor is on top of the water or submerged, the Sonobuoys float around the surface for a while and eventually sink into the ocean bottom, just like all others. They're out there forever, never come back. There's no recycling program that I have ever heard of, she says, although I'm sure environmental people would love it. So, yeah, Brian, there's already quite a bit of junk at the bottom of the ocean, uh, which I'm sure some people are very upset about. But if you look back at all the ships that have been sunk, not just in wars, but just civilian shipping, plus all the dumping that goes on and nets and everything else, the ocean bottoms are probably not as pristine as they were a thousand years ago. But uh, unfortunately, that is just the nature of the beast. All right, let's take our final phone call for the day. Hi, Jello. This is uh, Robert Hooting calling from Germany. Uh, I live in Germany. I'm actually Dutch, and I'm a great fan of your podcast. I listen to it all the time, especially when I'm uh, working on the house. And um, actually, I'm a pilot just like you, flying 737s for a big airline in Europe. And uh, I had a coffee this morning with my boss, who is uh, also a 737 captain and he flew in the german air force and he flew the 104 at a tornado and an exchange program at cannon air force base in new mexico on the f-111c or d i'm not sure and i asked him because it, uh, it was missing on your podcast the f-111 at least i couldn't find it maybe i overlooked it but uh, I was kind of wondering if you're interested in uh, interviewing him as well. He's German, uh, was an exchange pilot, uh, just like his uh, widow in Canon for three years, and uh, he'll be happy to help you. And uh, it would be nice to, to have him on your podcast. Uh, good luck with the show. Great job. And I listen to it all the time. Have a nice day. Bye. All right, Robert, thanks for the question. Sure, if you want to email me at vincent at bvrpro.com, we could figure out a way maybe to get you on the show. If we don't have you on an actual Fighter Pilot Podcast episode, one thing we've been doing a lot of lately is what we call the Happy Hour series. And we play it mostly on Patreon for our supporters, but once in a while, we'll pull them out and use them for intermissions like we've done recently with, I think we did one with Paul Wood and uh, Jeffrey Brain. And so, yeah, give me a shout and we'll see what we can do. Sounds like you have some interesting experience and maybe you can even help us out with our upcoming Century Series. Yeah, that'd be huge. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of a lot of requests on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram as well for the uh, F-111. So that would be definitely an interesting one. That's even you know more interesting with an exchange, um, a German exchange pilot in the uh, Air Force there. So that'd be pretty cool. Absolutely. And at this point, we've already waited so long to do the F-111 that we might include that one in our Century Series. So yeah. uh, episodes 107 to 110 will have to be probably something different, and then we can maybe circle back. Uh, and just in case anyone's curious about episode 103, probably what we'll do is use that one to cover the F-100, because episode 100, is, as I said at the top, is going to be our little celebratory century, hey, we made it to 100, and 
I don't know, started this thing as a hobby a long time ago, and here it is still going strong after 90-ish episodes, and hopefully we'll make it to 100, Boat. That is awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a cool thing to be a part of. I appreciate being here. Oh, good. Well, we have certainly appreciated your support and you are able to bring sides of things that we are not familiar with. And hopefully soon we can get you doing some interviews as well. So anyway, we can wrap it up by thanking some of our new Patreon supporters. We've got Strike Leads, David Barclay, Walter Rios, Russell Squares, and Anmal Singh. We have a new mission commander, Brad Fisher, although he's not that new. He was a supporter before. He had to leave for a while, take care of things, but he's back. We're happy for that. We also have Steve Bishop and Daniel Rezevi. And we have new air bosses, Alexander Saucier and Derek Chung. And Derek is like a super air boss boat. He actually contributed quite a bit to the show, and we're very thankful for that, as well as all of our supporters. That's awesome. Well, you know what's funny, Boat? You know what I did not do in our Army Aviation Month? I didn't do our usual disclaimer at the end of the show. But you know what? I don't know. A lot like wearing masks, I, I think I'm kind of over it. I mean, at this point, if you haven't figured out that we're not representing, I mean, come on. <laughs> I think that's probably a pretty fair fair way to go uh, going forward. It's it's obviously, uh, you know, you could do a pre-canned statement or something like that that you just have pre-recorded. But uh, mm-hmm. I think I think everybody's pretty smart at this point to know that uh, we're definitely not uh, making policy here on the podcast. Yeah. Well, and if I were to get furloughed and I were to go get a job with some contractor and I was then trying to sell things to the government, that yeah. would be certainly something sticky. But sure. I guess that's not going to be an issue, it sounds like, and that's a good thing. And uh, in the meantime, yeah, we'll just maybe do one a month or one a year or something. But hey, folks, we don't represent the government or the Department of Defense or its associates, blah, blah, blah. Hopefully, if you've been listening to the show a while, you're aware of that. So anyway, Boat, uh, what else is there? I think we can wrap this up. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've definitely cleaned out the inbox. and uh, But by, by no means are we not going to answer any f- future questions. So please uh, send them to us. And we'd love to uh, kind of expand the the coverage on all things uh fighter pilot related oh absolutely well and military aviation i would say yeah. in fact next time if we can get this as you and i are recording i don't yet have the interview but if we can do it we're going to have an episode on hurricane hunters those are the fellows that and gals that fly the wc-130 they go out and poke around on these hurricanes and get all the weather information that we need and uh it's it's not i guess a traditional military role but they are flying a military aircraft and there's both the NOAA folks as well as the air force folks that do that so we thought that would be timely especially with a couple storms taking aim right now at the louisiana area yeah and then we've also got some other good aircraft coming up so folks will just have to stick around for that yeah it'll be uh, it'll be a good uh, way to get into the holiday season for sure oh yeah well, and again, we hope to maybe have Bomber Month, and uh, then we got the Century Series coming up. So a lot going on here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Stick around. Know where to find us. We're on all the social media. We've got our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. We've got a YouTube channel. we got it all. So, Boat, thanks for being with us today, and thanks to all the listeners as well. What do you got to uh, wrap it up with, Boat? Uh, that's, that's pretty much it for me. Thanks for having me once again, and I uh, look forward to seeing everybody out there. Awesome. All right. Take care. See you. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. 
National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.